Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, how does the Lord want us to love him? With our entire heart and soul. What else? Also, with our mind. Now, why is that? Because our faith will have no actual power without being combined with understanding. And this is why we emphasize the teaching of the truths of the gospel. Our Lord Jesus Christ commanded his disciples to preach and teach the gospel. And church leaders have carried out that task after that generation passed away. And so there's the preaching you hear on Sundays. And there are catechism classes for young people and new believers. The scripture shows us that this emphasis on instruction is not new. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses already emphasized that parents should teach their children about the faith. As society got more complex, parents realized that they couldn't teach their children everything they needed to know for life. In our circles, this led them to establish Christian schools. In all this, the word is central. And this comes from the realization that the Holy Spirit works through the word. He renews and shapes our minds. And when this happens, there will also be an impact on our wills. That's how he transforms our lives. And with this in mind, it should become clear why the Catechism stresses knowledge of the faith. Do you remember question and answer two of the Heidelberg Catechism? What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort, namely the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord? What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The joy of true Christian comfort is connected to the things we know. What comfort is there in knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior? We won't be able to give an adequate answer unless we know why we need him as a Savior. And this forms the basis for Lord's Days 2 through 4 with its focus on our sin and misery. These Lord's Days give fundamental instruction. They begin with confronting us with the law of God. And that law exposes our sin and misery. It shows how bad our sinful condition is. And we learn it's our fault for being in this situation. And the result is that we face God's just punishment. This summarizes our sin and misery. And the truth can hurt. It's painful to see ourselves the way we are. And this is especially the case when God exposes our sins. He sees through our excuses and removes them. But he does this for a reason. He wants us to understand the solution he gives 
And so we come to the theme for this afternoon. Our God reveals the depths of the problem of sin. And we'll focus on two points, the severe price of sin, and secondly, the payment for sin. Our God reveals the depths of the problem of sin. We'll focus on the severe price of sin and the payment for sin. Lord's Day 5, as I pointed out, formed the introduction to a new section of the Catechism. The topic is our deliverance. It's an extensive subject. Lord's Day 5 focuses on our need for a Savior. And Lord's Day 6 then explains who our Savior is. Lord's Day 7 raises the question, who are saved? And what must we believe in order to be saved? Now let's focus in particular on the introduction to this section. Lord's Day 5 builds on the preceding Lord's Days. It sets the stage for what follows. And the basic point is to help us to understand our need for a Savior. And what we confess is based on Scripture. The questions and the answers follow logically. The Catechism intends to lead us to the inescapable conclusion that we need deliverance from our sin and misery. We have learned from Scripture that we are sinners. We have acknowledged that God has the fullest right to punish us. Objections to this have already been dealt with in Lord's Day 4. And the first question of Lord's Day 5 assumes that we have accepted the instruction so far. You can hear it in how it introduces the next topic. Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? Note that the question speaks ab about God's righteous judgment. It assumes we've understood something of our guilt. We acknowledge that we deserve temporal, that means in this life, and eternal punishment for our sins. And that gives rise to a question that has two parts to it. First of all, how can we escape this punishment? And secondly, and be again received into favor. The question shows a deep understanding of the consequences of sin. Compare this with Isaiah 59, verse 2. There the Lord says to his people, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And the word separation describes the punishment. The relationship has been broken. Instead of God interacting with his people, he has turned his face away. And doesn't this portray what the catechism is talking about? Sins do more than just evoke God's wrath. They separate us from him. Isaiah describes the consequences in a very visual way. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, what does this mean? The Lord doesn't want to look at his people. 
He doesn't want to listen to their prayers because of their ongoing sins. There's no communication anymore. Sin is a violation of God's law. As such, it deserves punishment. And what makes sin so terrible? It has to do with the context in which it takes place. And the Catechism is referring to that context here. It's that of the covenant, the relationship of love which God once established with men. And the troubling aspect of sin is not only that it results in punishment, it's a breaking of the covenant, that relationship of love. And the result is that sinners end up being out of favor with God. We haven't learned enough about how bad sin is if we only see it as wrongdoing. We need to understand what the severe consequences of sin are. What have we lost because of it? God's favor. So what's the way back? What would it take to have the relationship restored? It's obvious that it's not enough to escape God's righteous judgment. What have we gained if we no longer need to fear temporal and eternal punishment? It's not enough just to know that God is no longer angry. Do you want him to be indifferent to you afterwards? Or would you want his loving attention? Shouldn't we want him to admit us back into fellowship with him? What joy compares to knowing his fatherly face shines upon us? What greater joy than to know that he hears our prayers and cares? Basically, we're talking about the difference between hell and heaven. What did Jesus cry out because of the anguish of hell during those hours on the cross? He cried out that God had forsaken him. The source of his suffering was not just the bodily pain. He was missing God's love and feeling the weight of his divine anger. That made his agony so great. And the phrase, forsaken by God, depicts the essence of what it means to be in hell. Heaven is the opposite of that. It's more than just a place of eternal happiness. It's where God is in his glory. It's where it's possible to have unbroken fellowship with him. So there is scriptural wisdom in how the Catechism introduces the topic of deliverance. It brings into focus the two aspects of what deliverance involves. As mentioned a moment ago, it's not enough to escape God's righteous judgment. We want him to admit us back into fellowship with him. That's what deliverance from sin and misery is all about. What does it take to be delivered from our sin and misery? What's the price? 
the catechism could have pointed immediately to Jesus Christ as the only Savior. And that would be true, but still puzzling if we don't understand why he's the only one who can save us. We need to think things through carefully. Before pointing to Jesus Christ, the catechism first lays some groundwork. It works with very biblical principles. John, for example, writes, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. He is truthful and just. He gave clear warnings against sin in paradise, and he continues to hold sinners responsible for their deeds. So we have to face our responsibility. What price has to be paid for sin? Death. Think of Ezekiel 18, verse 4, where we read the word of the Lord. The soul who sins shall die. And does that take care of everything? No. Consider what would satisfy God's justice. He wants his will to be obeyed in a positive sense. Are we capable of perfect obedience? No. Can we somehow atone for our sins and then also work ourselves into God's favor? No. The Catechism puts it like this. Can we by ourselves make this payment? And the answer is clear and brief. Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. And take this answer very seriously, beloved. We daily increase our debt. People don't often consider what the cost of their sins is. Many have never taken the time to consider the depth of God's law. They don't understand the extent to which they sin. Imagine asking someone the following question. Assuming there's a heaven, you think you will go there when you die? And many would answer, yes. And if you would ask them, why? They would answer, because I lead a pretty decent life. And what does that tell you? They think in terms of the good in their lives outweighing the bad. And so they feel rather optimistic about their chances. Many heathen religions are based on the same principle of self-redemption. People feel that as long as they stick to certain rules, they should be okay. And there's a term for that. It's called legalism. Do you think God could be satisfied if we follow rules that we made up ourselves? That would be a big mistake. God sets the terms for fellowship with him. Man-made rules can never replace his law. And when did God give his law to his people? He did that after establishing a relationship with them. 
He was teaching them how to live in fellowship with him. Sins offend God. They violate the relationship he has established with us. There can be sins of ignorance. There are also deliberate, intentional sins. Sins like that show defiance or rebellion. Instead of doing things God's way, you choose to go your own way. What's the price of sins, whether done because of ignorance or done on purpose? Can we make things right with God again? The Catechism raises the question in order to, in order to crush all hopes for self-redemption. It wants to stamp out the idea that we can save ourselves by doing our best. Our best will never be good enough. As our creator, God may demand absolute obedience. That's his right. He is a righteous God and his laws are perfect and just. They apply all the time throughout our lives. And when we disobey his law, we make ourselves worthy of punishment. And when we obey his law, we're not doing something extra. We're only doing our duty. What if you could serve God perfectly from now on? Would you be able to atone for your sins? Past sins? No. There's no way we can catch up on our debt. However, the situation is even grimmer. We can't even keep our debt from growing. Every day the situation gets worse. No day goes by without us sinning. That's why the Catechism rejects the idea of us being able to pay off our debts. On the contrary, we daily increase our debts. Imagine trying to pay that off. It's impossible. Our God reveals the depths of the problem of sin. We focus on the severe price of sin. Let's now pay attention to the payment for sin. And this is our second point. The price of atonement and being restored into favor with God gets higher all the time. And no wonder the psalmist cries out in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? No one would have a hope of salvation if left to himself. We don't have what it takes to pay off our debt to God. And what about having other creatures pay for us? Would that work? Doesn't the Old Testament talk about animal sacrifices? And the Catechism raises this question as part of a good teaching strategy. By the process of elimination, it is teaching us what kind of a mediator we need. So what's the answer? Do the Old Testament sacrifices mean God can be satisfied with the death of animals in our place? 
The author of the letter to the Hebrews explains that these animals couldn't function as mediators. In Hebrews 10, the verses 3 to 4, we read that such sacrifices only served as a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why was this impossible? The Catechism gives us the answer. God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. The sacrifices in Old Testament times didn't mean those animals were being punished because of man's sins. Sinners are responsible for their own sins. So then, why did God command animal sacrifices to be brought? They were not a form of payment. They illustrated the need for a mediator. And the Catechism also mentions another reason why no mere creature could pay for us. God's wrath against sin is eternal. No mere creature would be able to bear that burden and deliver others. It's totally overwhelming. We read in Nahum 1 verse 6, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Consider what the Bible teaches us. There's only one conclusion. The mediator we need must be unique, unlike anything in this world. As the Catechism puts it, he must be a true and righteous man. But he must also be more powerful than all creatures. For no creature can really withstand God's anger. More powerful than all creatures? Who's that? Only God. Every living being outside of God is a creature. And if no creature can bear the burden of God's wrath, then God himself, then there's only one way of salvation. The mediator has to be no one less than God himself. That would be the only way our sins could be paid for. And that would be the only way for us to be restored to fellowship with God. And if you understand this, brothers and sisters, you will stand in awe of God and his grace. Throughout history, he has shown his willingness to forgive sinners. Throughout history, he has made it clear that there's only one way back to fellowship with him. By grace alone. That message resounded in paradise after man's fall into sin. And the message continues to be proclaimed to this day. We need a unique mediator. Who is that? The Son of God. He is fully God. 
He is also a true and righteous man. We read in Hebrews 2, the verses 14 to 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, namely the Son of God, partook of the same things. He took upon himself our human nature, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What a mediator. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, paid our debt in full. And what did he do? He was obedient where we failed to keep God's law. He also bore the burden of our sins. Our Savior suffered throughout his life under the wrath of God. He completed the payment on the cross of Golgotha. There our debt was officially paid. And how do we know that? He cried out, It is finished! What does that mean? It means no further sacrifice is needed. And this explains why there is salvation for repentant sinners. It's not because our repentance merits anything. We don't earn anything by repenting. It's not because we do any good works. It's because Jesus Christ paid the price we could not pay. And you see how comforting this is. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. And the word Redeemer refers to someone who pays a price for someone else. Our Heavenly Father sent His only begotten Son to be our Redeemer. And through Jesus Christ, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. He has opened the way for us to our Heavenly Father. We are received into favor with God. What a blessing! Jesus Christ is our High Priest, the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed by the ceremonies and sacrifices in Old Testament times. He sacrificed himself, atoning for our sins. He can empathize with us in our struggles against sin. As the author of the letter to the Hebrews puts it, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He helps us by teaching us how to resist sin and live in a relationship with God. Give up any hope of saving yourself through your own efforts, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is the mediator we need. We can't pay for our sins. Look to him alone. He is the only way of salvation. Briefly put, we can't be saved without him. We can only be saved through him. There's no other way. And knowing this, 
we know enough to be comforted. He delivers us from our sin and misery. And what's your response to that? Be thankful and show it. Amen.